Now open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 19. What Josh has told me a little bit about where you all started yesterday, and this idea that what we're doing is we're seeing the encounters that people had with God on mountaintops. Then this overall concept and idea of encountering God or being in God's presence is one that permeates really throughout all of Scripture. We see that really that's God's desire is to dwell with man. If we go all the way back to Genesis, that's what God created. If you ever wanted to know exactly what God desires and what God wants, you start with where He started. When it was a blank canvas, what did God create? God created an environment to where man could walk and talk with Him, where they could dwell together. That's what God wants for us and what God desires. Well, we know then after the fall that there was this now separation between God and man. And from Genesis chapter 3 through the end of Revelation, God is inputting the plan that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit crafted before the foundation of the world of how to reconcile us back to that same relationship. But what we see throughout the course of Scripture is Points in time where men could be in the somewhat presence of God. See, in, throughout the Old Testament, we couldn't be actually in the presence of God. And no man can look upon the face of God. But rather, we see them being around, the best way I can describe it is God's essence. You know, Remember we had Moses with the burning bush. It wasn't God, the bush was on fire. Ezekiel talks about the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. You see these brief glimpses to where man could start to interact until we have Emmanuel, or God with us, and Jesus walking in the flesh on the face of this earth. So it's important, I think, when we look at these encounters, when we look at how they interacted and how they came into the presence of God, there's so many lessons there that we can learn. There's so much truth to what's going on when we see this presence of God. So and we're in... Genesis chapter, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 19, rather, and we're going to talk tonight about the power of God. When we talk about the power of God, I think we've got to start first with where the power originates. One of the most powerful statements we see in all the scripture when we're introduced to God is in Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God. That statement by itself declares what? That God always is. That in the beginning, before anything else, there is God. And so, even though the Roman writer says that before we're even introduced to scriptures, the creation cries out and demands that there is a creator. Creation screams that there has to be a designer. There has to be intelligent design behind this. And when we go to find out about that creator, the account starts with in the beginning. The very beginning, before anything else, there is God. God then, as we talked about has designed Eden, and man fell, sinned against him, there was separation, and now we wind through this story of reconciliation. When we get to Exodus chapter 19 to kind of pave the way to where we're going to be tonight, I think if we're going to spend the night together climbing Mount Sinai, I think we first got to walk a little bit to get there so we understand what's going on. There was a famine in the land. And we know that Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery, ends up in Egypt, gets elevated through the providence of God, 
to sit at the right hand of Pharaoh, to be in charge of, of all of the things of Egypt. And then there arose after several generations of Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, that forgot about how he helped not only Egypt survive, but thrive and prosper and grow into a world power. The Jews started to outnumber the Egyptians, and so there was fear and there was worry, and they started putting them to death. And then they began to oppress them even worse. And there was slavery, and they're putting to death the males of the firstborn, and there's a lot of oppression, and the children of Israel cry out to God. And God sends them a leader. And that leader, Moses, who oftentimes we think about through Exodus, and we think about through you know the, the many good parts of Moses, we also have to remember that Scripture is honest with all these characters. And honest with the fact that Moses was a reluctant leader. Moses wasn't really up for this. But what happens when God first calls Moses? And God says, I want you to be the mouthpiece. What does Moses say? Not so much. You know, you see, I'm not all that great at the whole talking thing. And if you could really find somebody, anybody else. And God's response right back to Moses was, I made your mouth. I know how to make it work. Okay, I'm the creator, I'm the designer, and I can put in your mouth and tell you what to say. And Moses follows that up with, yeah, but really somebody else. And where we see Isaiah and some of the other prophets that says, here am I, send me. Moses said, here am I, anybody else. I don't want to do this. God frustrated, says, fine. Your brother Aaron, I'll let him do some of the talking. And between the two of you together, you're going to lead my people out of this Egyptian oppression. And so Moses and Aaron worked together and Moses commanding uh, statements in front of Pharaoh worked on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, showing him the evidence, showing him the real power of God. And we think about that from the staff that turned into a snake and returned to the staff to the ten plagues to finally Pharaoh after the death of his firstborn decides to let God's people go. And they went. And as they went, everybody remembers the rest of the story, Pharaoh just said, you know what, we'll just let them walk away. No, that's not what happened. Pharaoh got mad. said, wait a minute, I've been had. Send the chariots and the armies and go after them. So the chariots and the armies, they went after them and they pursued them. And the Israelites, as they were walking, these children of God that first initially thought, hey, we found safety and we've been let out, started hearing the chariots behind them. Started getting worried and now they got to the Red Sea. And you got this big Red Sea in front of us that's got several thousand feet across it and you got an army pressing on the back of them. There's no bridge. Surely we're going to be killed here. Moses, couldn't you have just let us die peacefully in our own homes? But here we're going to die next to the Red Sea. Moses said, don't fret. Then he put that staff in the water, remember? And the Red Sea parted. And they walked on dry ground, and they walked across, and they started to go into the promised land. And the sea fell behind them, and crushed and killed and wiped out the Egyptians that were following. And then we find ourselves in Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, starting in verse 1, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from the Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they had camped there in the wilderness. There Israel camped before the mountain. 
while Moses went up to God. The Lord called called out to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and to tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I want you to think about it as they've come and they've encamped around this mountain. Three new moons after that. If you're keeping track and doing math at home, that's three months. Three months have passed since they walked on dry ground through the Red Sea. Three months have passed since the ten plagues happened. Three months had passed since they were oppressed and beaten down and miserable and cried out to God and He answered them. And God says as they gather around the mountain, He says to Moses, I want you to go to the people and I want you to tell them to remember. I want you to tell them to think about where they were. And I want you to tell them to think about when they cried out. And I want you to tell them to think about when I answered. Is that a powerful lesson, you think? That's powerful for them to dwell on those things and knowing they've come now into the presence of God before the mountain. Moses is going to go up and speak to God on their behalf. But God wants them to know who He's talking to. Because in Egypt, Pharaoh said He was a God. But when it turned out, when Pharaoh was confronted with a real God, how'd that work out for him? found out what the difference between being a fake God and a real God is. Real quick, didn't he? And didn't his magicians and hirelings that had all their smoke and mirrors and tricks, what happened to them when they tried to test what the power of the real God is? Didn't work out well for him, did it? And he's saying, I want you to, I want them to think about that. I want them to dwell on that, and I want them, as you come into my presence, and as you hear what I have to say, I want you to think about all that had happened. Now, this is the first part of this story that I get puzzled at. Because why would God have to tell them to remember that? Wouldn't that be fresh on your mind? I mean, if you had been a slave for all of your known life, and you had called out to God, and you'd seen the ten plagues, and you'd seen the crazy... I mean, there was stuff falling from the sky. The, the Nile turned red with blood. I mean, they saw the firstborn of all these Egyptian people die. I mean, there were powerful things that happened in those ten plagues. There were powerful things that they saw happen. Why in the world do they need to think about that and remember that? I don't know about you, but I've worked some bad jobs before. But he worked a really bad job, terrible job that you hated the whole time you were there. Right? Does anybody have to tell you to remember how bad that job was? Or do you always remember that that was terrible and I never want to do that again? Right? We remember stuff like that. We remember those terrible experiences we have in life. And it doesn't stray far from our memory. As a matter of fact, working bad jobs to me are like fishing stories. The longer ago it gets, the bigger the fish gets. Right? So, and the bad job's the same way. Right? I, I'll tell you about some of the first terrible jobs I had and make you think that I was just an indentured servant. They didn't even pay me. They just beat on me every day, right? When we think about all those terrible times in oppression and then think about what happened in the good, right? And then I miraculously got a call from a headhunter and now I'm at the best job in the world, right? 
We don't have to dwell on that. We don't have to be told to remember that. Those are things that are at the forefront of our minds. And yet, God knows these people, doesn't he? He knows how soon and how quickly they forget. And as much as tonight we're going to point some fingers and fuss at these ungrateful people, you and I are just as bad, if not worse. We're going to talk about some of that too, that we need to be reminded for ourselves to dwell on the good and the promises of God, to dwell on what happens and how bad we were before we met Him, because we're going to forget. And when we forget, we start grumbling and fussing about stuff that don't matter. Start complaining with our mouths full. That's what they did over and over again. Moses, verse 7, came out and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we're going to do. And Moses reported these words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. I want to stop there again for a minute. Again, this is the second time here in this lesson that I'm going to be a little confused. Why does Moses have a credibility issue? Listen to what God said. God said, I'm going to bring the smoke and I'm going to bring the fire so that the people will believe you. Why wouldn't the people believe him after he told them ten plagues were going to happen and they happened? Why wouldn't the people believe him after he stood to Pharaoh and said, you're going to let my people go? Pharaoh said no, and then Pharaoh finally had to relent at the power of God. Why don't they believe him after he stuck that staff in the ground and the waters parted and they walked, not in mud, but they walked on dry ground? Just as Moses told them it was going to happen. Why does Moses need some backup now from God? Why do you think? Why do you think God has to tell Moses, I'm going to back you up and I'm going to show them that all the things that you say are coming with the power of me behind you? Why do we have signs and wonders and miracles in the first place? You ever thought about that? I think oftentimes we see these signs and wonders and miracles and some of us, because they're so amazing, and, and this walking on dry ground, I want you to just take, take a moment and to picture this. Right? You, you've got this army breathing down against you. Moses sticks his staff in the ground and those waters part. And you're walking on dry ground, and there's hundred foot waves on both sides of you. And they're just standing there, suspended. And you're walking past this, and your shoes aren't even getting dirty. And then you walk up on the other side. I mean, think about just how fantastical that idea is. And yet, and yet, it's not enough. Sometimes we look so much at the fantastical that we forget the only reason it's there is so that God can grab our attention and tell us spiritual things. The only reason that God does these amazing feats of nature and shows that He has control over the winds and the waves, over the very concept and fundamentals of nature like gravity and physics and other laws that we say are immutable so that they'll listen when he tells them spiritual things. 
What goes on from chapter 19, from chapter 20 through chapter 33, is God explaining to them how the mosaical law is going to be set up, how they're going to learn to have reverence for them, how they're going to learn to see that He is to be honored, how they're going to learn with physical attributes, spiritual truths. That's what we see, right, in the the Hebrew writer. Hebrew writer talks about all these Old Testament things, the tabernacle, the showbread, the room, the Holy of Holies, all of that was so that you could understand what it means that God is holy. So that you could understand these spiritual truths of when the veil is now torn and we have access to God through His Son as our high priest. That no longer is there all these sacrifices that has to take place and all this blood that has to be shed and all of these things that they have to do first for the high priest, then for the people before they can even start to think about approaching God. All of this ceremony, all of this circumstance is so that we understand what it means to approach God. That we understand just how bad sin is. I often think about these sacrifices that he's instituting here and then later through the book of Leviticus. Can you imagine what that was like on the Day of Atonement? And think about it. Just the amount of bulls and goats that had to be killed. The amount of blood that had to be shed that day. That flowed all over the altars. That was sprinkled out across the people. That ratified the covenant. What do you think that scene looked like? Go further. What do you think it smelled like? What do you think those rivers and gallons and gallons and gallons of blood did to remind you about how bad sin really is? Is it any wonder when you start to think about that day, that scene, that they stopped doing it? I wouldn't want to think about that either. If I'm evil, if I've left God, if I've gone into idolatry, I don't want to think about what my trespasses have cost us all this year. I wouldn't want to see that scene because it would be graphic and it would be powerful and it would be impactful and it would bring guilt and shame to my heart. I would think about, look at how bad this is. I've got to be better. So what do you do? Either you face it and you try to get better or you hide from God. You say, hey, I can make this thing out of wood that doesn't require as much. Excuse me, I might have to sneeze at some point. But I'm going to craft this thing out of wood or out of precious metals or, or I'm going to make this graven image that's not nearly as bad as facing the truth. While Moses spends 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, they make one of those. So close to the power of the real God because they can't face the truth. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go tell the people to consecrate themselves today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now again, I want us to think about what he's asking them to do here. He says, consecrate themselves, wash themselves. What does that mean? Is, is that your, you know, your normal Sunday bath that you take once a week whether you need it or not? Is that just washing your outer garments? What's this consecrating of themselves? Well, in this ritual washing, it was as much about 
cleansing their heart and their mind as it was with cleaning up their outer garments. Part of it, yes, was making sure that they clean their clothes and that they're nice and they're presentable before coming into the presence with God. But more so, it was about them mentally, spiritually putting aside everything else. Their hearts and their minds being pure and being clean and being ready. Because they're getting ready to be in the very presence of the Creator of the heavens and the earth. I often think about that too. What would you do to get yourself or maybe your home ready if the president was coming? Assuming he was your president and all that jazz, right? What would you do to get ready? Would you power wash the outside of the house? Would you get down on your hands and knees and scrub the floor? Would you make sure that the clothes you had on were the nicest, cleanest ones? Or would you come out with raggedy t-shirts and holes in your stuff and not prepared at all? How would we be ready to see somebody like the president? And then think about how much higher you'd magnify that to be in the presence of God. If we do that for an elected official that at least half the country hates at any given time, what else would, what would we do for God? How would we prepare ourselves? I can just imagine again the scene, and I want you to try to picture this, of these people and what they're doing to get themselves ready. In three days, God's coming. In three days, He's going to descend on this mountain. In three days, we're going to see the one that bore us out on the wings of an eagle. On three days, we're going to see Him. I mean, that's more excited than most people are for Christmas, right? We're, we're going to see Him. He's going to be here. Verse 12. You shall set limits for all the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or to touch the edge of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the third day, verse 16, on the morning of the third day, There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the very trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it with fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses on to the top of the mountain. And so Moses went up. I want you to think about that picture and that scene. If you're Joe Israelite, and you're standing at the base of the mountain, and this is the best I could do as far as a picture. This is an artist's render of what that would have looked like. I promise you that doesn't do it any justice. This, This picture in no way can personify or magnify how great and awesome that sound and that sight was. They trembled as they went and approached, and Moses walked up into that. 
Moses ascended up the mountain toward the smoke and toward this fire, toward the thunder and toward the lightning. Moses came up to meet God. Now, again, one of the things we've got to understand here is when we come into the presence of God, we're not going to see God like you see me standing here. We're going to see an element of His power. Moses saw Him once in the burning bush that was burning but was not consumed. Here it's smoke and fire and lightning and thunder and there's, there's all this noise going on that they're shook to their core. Because God is going to speak to Moses and tell Moses exactly what the people should be doing. But the question I want us to understand when we approach this text is, what exactly is power? When we say Moses saw the power of God, the people saw the power of God. What exactly is power? How do you describe it, or how would you describe it? How would you think about it when you say someone has power, someone is powerful? One of the fun things I like to do when I'm trying to define terms and see what people think terms are, this is a great exercise for you, go to Google Images and type in the word that you're looking for. And you'll see all kind of stuff start to pop up that will, some of it very funny, Others of it makes you sad for the face of society and where we are. But if you Google, if you put in Google Image, you put in power, the first few images that come up are going to talk about the electric company. You're going to talk about energy and electricity and hydroelectric dams and stuff like that. But then you get into quotes about absolute power corrupting absolutely. You get into quotes that talk about how the powerful are the ones with wealth, or the ones with influence, or the ones that lord over people or have the strength to defeat them either by having armies or themselves being powerful as far as having weapons or, or money. And I think about all that and I think, is that really how we should view power? Should we view power by the strongest guy in the room, the one that can kill everybody? Is that who the most powerful is? Should we view power by the one that is the wealthiest and that can buy anybody else in the room or anything else that they want or see fit? Is that really power? Is it influence? Is it the fact that I can be charismatic enough to talk you into doing anything I want you to do? Is it fire and smoke? Is the power really the fire and the smoke? Had they ever seen fire and smoke before? Well, yeah, anybody that's ever cooked has, right? They saw fire and smoke in Egypt. Maybe not to this level, but it's just a giant campfire. Was it the thunder and the lightning? I'm sure they'd seen storms before. I'm sure they'd seen and heard thunder roar and lightning strike. Maybe not in concert, as the fire and the smoke are there. And the thunder and lightning are coming in, and they coincide with Moses speaking. But is that really where the power lies? Is the power really in these physical attributes? Is it really in what we can see? Or is what we can see just there to draw our attention so that we can understand better things? Jesus says it this way in Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, when Jesus heals the paralytic, if you remember the account, 
you know, Jesus, the, they lower the friends, go up, tear the roof off and destroy a good man's house and drop this paralytic in to the middle of Jesus. And Jesus, while he's teaching, there's Jews that are in the room and he mentions to them as he begins this, he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. You see, before Jesus healed him physically, Jesus healed him spiritually, right? Remember the verses right before that. Jesus told him, your sins are forgiven. And they looked at him like he was crazy. And he said, well, which one's easier to believe? And of course the answer is, it's easier for you to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because you can't prove it, right? If we had a mass murderer, uh, pedophile, whatever, awful sinner that's sitting in this pew right here, two in front of Danny, because we don't want him to get his dirt on Danny, right? If that guy obeys the gospel tonight, and we take him and we baptize him, when he comes out of the water and he sits back down on the pew, does he look any different? I mean, maybe he's wet now, right? But hopefully we've given him a towel. But does he really look any different? Can we tell that anything has happened to this guy? Maybe in demeanor, right? Maybe he's rejoicing at this point, but we can't tell those sins are gone. There may be some of us in this room that don't believe the sins are gone. Spiritually, we can't see stuff happen, can we? Can any of us, I, I can't put anybody in this room in an x-ray or an MRI or a CT machine and tell whether you got sin in your life or not. I can tell whether or not you got a broken bone. I can tell whether or not you got a brain bleed. I can't tell whether your soul's clean or not. Jesus said, let me show you something physical so that you'll understand what I'm doing spiritually. God does the same thing here on Mount Sinai, he says, look at the smoke and see the power because what I want you to understand is the spiritual message that's getting ready to come. Isn't that what Jesus says in the New Testament? Why there's signs and wonders and miracles? So that we'll listen when he starts talking about sin. So that we'll listen when he starts talking about how God came to seek and save the lost. You see, the spiritual principles are always what's most important. Many of us have had the terrible, awful, unfortunate belief that God is somehow bipolar. That in the Old Testament, you've got this awful monster that's all about retribution and judgment and killing and striking down anybody that crosses his path. And then, in that 400 years of biblical silence, God has a midlife crisis and now he's all about love and peace and hugs and kisses and nobody's going to be judged and hell doesn't even really exist anymore and it's just all sunshine and rainbows every day. But the truth is, God's the same in the Old Testament as he was in the New Testament. God never changed. God didn't change a lick. Come with me to Exodus chapter 34 and I'll show you. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Wait a minute, Mike. There isn't any grace in the Old Testament. It's not there. Forgiveness and mercy don't exist in the Old Testament, especially not in the power on Mount Sinai. Right? Isn't God supposed to just kill them and wipe them all out? I mean, He did that whole thing with the flood, right? But eight souls were saved there, right? We forget about the mercy and the grace that was shown to Noah and his family. We forget about the fact that Exodus 34 comes right after Exodus 32 and 33 when they built the calf on the side of the mountain. And God says, I want to forgive. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. Does that wording and that phraseology sound familiar to any of you? Does it sound like what Peter said? 1 Peter chapter 3. Sound familiar when Peter said, The Lord is not slow, as some men count slackness, but is patient, wishing all men everywhere to repent. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like what God says to Moses here in Exodus chapter 34? Doesn't it sound a whole lot like what Micah says in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8? You see, if we're careful Bible students, if we're careful and we don't let the narrative dictate what we're supposed to believe, Instead, we look and we read and we open our eyes to the text and let the text tell us that it's not about the thunder and it's not about the lightning and it's not about the smoke and it's not about the fire. It's about the fact that God wants and desires His people. God wants to get us back to Eden. How are we going to do that? By Him forgiving us. By Him granting us grace and mercy and love to wipe away our sins. Because as He said to Isaiah, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Why doesn't God delight in the death of the wicked? Shouldn't He? Isn't that the caricature that we paint of God? That He's just there ready in vengeance and wrath to wipe out any of the wicked. Isaiah says no. Because you know what happens at the death of the wicked? They no longer have an opportunity to repent. Sometimes we get this awful idea that God on judgment day In the end, after the second coming, as he's casting people into the lake of fire, which is the second death, that he's doing it with this big smile on his face. That look, I'm finally getting judgment on all you people that wronged me. Friends, if we read our scriptures a little more carefully, we'll see God will do that with tears in his eyes and pain in his voice. The same way that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you in. How I would have had you be mine. How I would have done anything for you. What more could I have done? God will do it blamelessly. Because He's done everything for us. In order to get us and convince us to turn back and to grab a hold of Him. God has reached out and done everything possible. But there will be some that will shun Him, that will turn away, and those will be lost. Just like they were here in Exodus. There were some that sought to consecrate Him, to consecrate themselves before Him, to worship on the side of the mountain, and there were others who went and built a golden calf. There were some 
who sought His worship, that received forgiveness of their trespasses, that worshipped Him faithfully and truly. There were some who found refuge in God and others that were lost. It's not just on that judgment day. But how do you read the verses of the Assyrian captivity, or the Babylonian captivity? Oftentimes when we think about those atrocities, it was, no, no, God told them and God warned them and look, that's just what was supposed to happen. So God willingly let that happen, wanted that to happen, made that happen. Because those people got what was coming to them, right? Friends, I encourage you, if you're not up on your history, read your minor prophets. Because they're going to tell a picture of where God says, yet even now, while the enemy is at the door, turn to me. And not only will you be saved, but I will leave you a great blessing. And they wouldn't turn. You'll find God begging them to show some ounce of remorse, to turn back to Him, and He would take away all of their idols. He would take away all of their sin and all of their shame. Because, friends, as we've talked about tonight, what God wants is redemption. What God wants is our salvation. What God wants is you and me, our souls, our lives. He wants to gather us close. Friends, I'm going to ask the question again, what is power? Is power about vengeance and about destruction? Or is power about something greater? Here's how I want you to answer that question. When you're wronged, when you're hurt, what's your initial reaction? I'm a terrible driver. I'm terrible because I have no patience. Okay, And I probably drive too fast. If you cut me off in traffic... I really want to get up underneath you, get you loose, and put you in the wall. Like immediately. That's vengeance. That's me trying to get some form of justice for a wrong that I perceived. What's the harder thing to do? To forgive. Harder to forgive, isn't it? It's harder to show mercy and to show grace, especially when they meant to hurt you, right? And that's me. What happens when you hurt one of my kids? What happens when you try to hurt my wife? I'm coming at your throat. I don't want to forgive you. I don't want to have some conversation about how I need to let you off and love my enemies. I want you to hurt. Is that power? Or does power look like Matthew chapter 26? Does power look like when you have the power to both destroy and to save, but at your cost, what are you going to do? Jesus said, if this was physical, this was about judgment, it's over. I don't know if you've ever done the math on this, but if two angels could wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you think 12 legions could do? Do you think they'd have any trouble wiping out the entire earth? They'd have done it in the blink of an eye, friends. Power is not about exerting force. Power is about saying that I will save even at my own cost. You see, many of us are more than willing and we're happy to forgive, 
as long as the other person repents, apologizes, makes it right, and we're sure they mean it, right? Because if my neighbor cuts down one of my trees, let's say, and I really like that tree, I'm mad at my neighbor. Now, he may be able to make it right to me. He may say, yeah, you know, I got too happy with the chainsaw. I'm really sorry. Um, I'll make it up to you. I'll plant you another tree. And if when I look in his eye, I feel like he's remorseful, I may let him off the hook. But he's got to plant that tree first. And, I mean, he better look me in the eye when he says he's sorry. What God says is, how about I plant my own tree and go and help my neighbor get better? I teach him and coach him about what he needs to do to be right. Out of my cost, my pocket, my money. You see, grace by its very nature is unfair and doesn't make any sense. Mathematically, it's ridiculous. Because look what God did. God sought to redeem us, right? Who sinned? It wasn't God, it was me, right? But what I did is I ran up a credit card bill that I could never pay, and God said, I'll pay for that. And not only when I pay for that, are you not going to be my indentured servant until you work it off, but I'm going to make you an heir, a son, part of my house. You belong to me now. You don't belong to me because you owe me. You belong to me because I love you, and I'm okay with whatever you did in the past. I'll take care of it. I'll blot it out. Think about how ridiculous that is. Friends, that's ridiculous. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the things of God to the world are foolishness. Because it is. If we're honest with ourselves about what grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption is, it makes absolutely zero sense. But God. To the world, these things are foolishness. But to those that are children of God, those that know God, understand what power really is. You see, that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jews got mad at Jesus. You see, when Jesus first begins to get on the scene and he's doing some miracles, they're kind of watching him and they don't know what to think about him. Until he doesn't take that stand and say, hey, I'm going to pick up David's sword, we're going to go to Rome and crush them and I'm going to sit on his throne physically. Because that's the guy they were looking for from Old Testament prophecy. Because what they read in the Old Testament was there's two different guys coming. There's this triumphant king, and then there's this suffering servant. But the suffering servant's weak, and he's of no value. We're waiting on that triumphant king. And so when Jesus acted more like the suffering servant than the triumphant king, they had no use for him. You're not going against Rome. You're not killing our enemies. Got no use for you. You're not powerful. It's where Peter had his crisis of faith, right? Because what happens right before this in Matthew 26? Peter says, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'm taking out my sword. It's time. It's go time. You walked on water. You healed people. Let's go to war. That's power. You're the son of God. Jesus said, that's not what this is about. You know what power is? I've got the power to lay down my life and take it up again. I've got the power to defeat sin, overcome it so that I can defeat sin for you who don't deserve it. You see, when we look at being in the presence of God on Mount Sinai, what he was trying to teach them 
was that power is not in the stuff that's going on around us. Power's in chapter 20 through chapter 33. Power's in them understanding the very nature and the attributes of God so that they can love Him, so that they can grow close to Him. Because in chapter 33, He says, love me because I want to forgive you. Because I want to forge this relationship with you. Because I own all of the earth and I will make you great. Why was he going to make him great? There's some promises he made to Abraham? Certainly. But because he loved us. When we were unlovable. And he loved them. When they were unlovable. You see, that's what power is. We love other people as long as we've got reciprocity. As long as you can do something for me, I'm happy to love you. But if you hurt me, and you keep hurting me, I don't want to love you anymore. See, that's not power. Power is the ability to lay things down and to take them up again. Power is the ability for God to make them great in spite of themselves. Power is seeing a bunch of ragtag people come and take over the promised land. Some of the best stories we can read in Joshua and Judges is how people that had no idea what they were doing took over entrenched, military-minded civilizations. And they came in and walked over. I mean, for goodness sake, they walked around Jericho and blew trumpets. The walls came tumbling. Why? Because they were great? Because they had power? No. Because the power that they had was the power to obey and yield to God when it doesn't make any sense. And friends, that's the very essence of faith. Faith is not about having it all figured out. If we go through Hebrews chapter 11 and we see where the true power of God resides, it's when I say, I'm not really sure how this is going to work out, but God, I'm going to trust that you're going to figure it out. Think about being Abraham and climbing that mountain with your son, knowing that he's a sacrifice. Hebrews tells us that Abraham reckoned that God would probably just raise him from the dead or something. Look carefully in your Bibles before Genesis chapter 26. Had anybody ever even talked about resurrection? It wasn't even a faint idea. Abraham just figured God will do something. I don't really know how it's going to work. God's going to figure it out. Because I implicitly trust him. Every one of the other characters we read through Hebrews 11, by faith they acted, not knowing the end, but trusting God to figure it out. Putting their faith and their hope in the power of God. Why? Because at a point in their life, they came to their own mountaintop. They came into the presence of God. The same way you and I do when we worship. When we come into His presence and we say, God, I trust You that when I go through those waters of baptism, I am dead to sin. I am coming in contact with the blood of Jesus and I raise a new creature in newness of life that You have the power to transform ordinary objects into spiritual meaning. There's no power in the water, but there is in the blood. And it's God's power that crosses those two together. And makes me whole. I can't see it, as we talked about. I can't see it when I come out of the water. The physical reminders we have 
of breaking the water to go down and breaking the water to come back up. To be united in the likeness of Jesus' death that we can be in the likeness of His resurrection. You see, when we come into that presence of God, and any time the rest of this week, and I'm sure as Josh talked about yesterday and Cain last night, when you think about being in the presence of God, don't pay attention to the thunder and the lightning. Don't look at the fire and the smoke. Open your heart and open your mind and see the spiritual things that are going on. Because rest assured, God is at work on the souls of men. He doesn't care about us physically, what we see with our eyes or hear with our ears. It's what we understand with our mind and with our soul and our devotion and dedication to Him. That's what's meaningful. Why? Because, friends, that's what's eternal. It's okay if we live the rest of this life with one eye or one arm or one leg. If we have to cut them off in order to enter in to the gates of heaven. We need to understand where real power is. Power is in redemption. Power is in eternity. And the physical things are just a blip to get our attention so that we can see the spiritual. i I got one or two more minutes. Thank you for your time and your attention. I hope that as we've looked at this, you can see a couple of quick things. One, that the power of God is vast and enormous. Two, that the power of God is far more spiritual than it ever is physical. And three, I want you to know how much God loves you and desires to dwell with you. That He'll forgive you when you don't deserve it. That He'll redeem you and make you whole. And He can take a worthless, vile, terrible people and make them great. Sometimes even against their will, as we've seen in the Old Testament. So if He can do that with wretches, what can He do with somebody like you or me? If we'll give Him our heart, our soul, our body, and our mind. Thank you all. we got one minute left. Questions, comments, thoughts on the end of this. Be happy to open it up and take any of those. So thank you all.